Okay, if you have a Bible, open up to Exodus chapter 20. So the title for the sermon this week is The Ten Commandments, and uh, some of you are really excited that that's the title of the sermon, and some of you are not excited that that's the title of the sermon, and that's kind of how it goes when you talk about something like the Ten Commandments. How many of you guys love rules? Like Rod, okay, yeah. How many of you really don't like rules? Okay. And how many of you don't care, really, one way or the other? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that was the dominant group in the... So I, lo- I love rules. Oh, I love them so much. They're the best. Um, and I have not always loved them. I didn't love them. I, I would say I probably started really loving rules when I turned 18 and moved out of my parents' house. Then I started to love rules. Before that, I didn't. But now they're all my rules, and I like them a lot. Um, and I have kids, and especially as a parent, um, there's a lot of rules. And um, I can relate to God in this passage that we're going to go through because most of the rules that I give my kids are shouted. Uh, they're like shouted from far away. And they, they, you have to really understand the context. If you don't, then you're going to have a hard time understanding what is going on. We, um, I, spe- I specifically think a lot about our neighbors behind us because we live in this unique layout of a neighborhood where there's uh, our backyard. The people I want my house from, they didn't really point this out, but there's, there's like the five points neighborhood. It's like gangs, right? And, and there's our fence, and then there's these little slivers of fences. And I started to look closely one day, and I realized there are like five other backyards right in one spot that like corner up. We could all come in our little things and have a, na- have a meeting or a fight or whatever, you know? And so there's like five different backyards behind ours. We have a pretty big yard. I'm constantly yelling stuff to my kids that people are hearing with no context, okay? And it's one thing when it's like, you know, normal type rules that we all understand, right, that are a little bit more universal, like stop hitting, stop fighting, stop yelling. That's the best one, is yelling that one, stop yelling, right? (laughs) But over time, the rules begin to be increasingly more specific to situations that you find yourself in. And again, don't make a lot of sense without context, right? Um, There's like, uh, don't sit on the dog, okay, not a big deal, right? Stop sitting on the dog's face, that's like seri- that's a really big one in our house because for some reason our dog lays down and his face looks like a chair. Um, stop putting things in the dog's mouth. Stop like as in like your hands and your feet and your arms and your legs and your face. Stop putting things in the dog's mouth. Leave the dog alone. Stop chasing the dog. Stop running from the dog. Go in the other room from the dog. Don't even just you remember you're not allowed to talk. The, the, the other day you're not you're not even allowed to look at the dog for the rest of the day. Remember what we told you. You're not even allowed to look at the dog for the rest of the day. Stop it. Right. Those are all rules that have been yelled in our house. Um, a lot of rules out in the yard. Uh, one of the big ones out in the yard is uh, what did we say about being naked on the trampoline? That's like a big rule <laughs> because it's like everything's fine. Everyone's having a good time, and you look out there, and it's like, yep naked on the trampoline, you know? Just like clothes being like, like, like swung around. And, and you're shouting that, like, put your clothes on. You're like shouting that on the trampoline, you know? Uh, you're yelling stuff like, don't look at your sister. That's like another big one. Don't look at them. Stop. What did I say? That's the rule. Don't look at them. Don't talk to him right? Uh, it, gets early, it gets light really early right now. And uh, as, as many of us know, I'm sure some of you love that it gets light early, but I don't because my son wakes up and he's got so much energy. Like I'm, the only time he has this much energy is when he goes to bed. So he has so much energy when it's bedtime and so much energy first thing in the morning. And he comes to my room so early and he's like so excited and ready to start the day. And he's like, it's morning. And I'm like, but it's not morning. You know, it's not morning. It's light outside. But that doesn't mean it's morning. So it's like, go back to your room, 
close the door, do not come out, do not talk, do not make any noise until we get up and come get you. So he's essentially grounded in the morning until we decide it's time to get up because that's the only way that we can make him give us any kind of sleep at all whatsoever. And uh, because then he'll go wake his sister up and the next thing we know the dog's in there and then we start with the dog thing all over again. There's, I was talking to somebody after the the first service who said their kids were gonna be in a wedding um, like in a week and, or they were going to be in a wedding, and so for the two weeks prior to the wedding, instead of saying, stop, don't hit each other, they specifically were only saying, don't hit each other in the face. Because they were going to be in a wedding in two weeks, and they were like, we just have to make sure your faces look okay, because you're going to be in pictures, right? That's like a, that's a perfect example of a specific rule. That without context, you're like, I don't know, I feel like you could broaden that rule a little bit, but okay, that family really cares about their looks. Um, the, the thing, when we get to this part of the Old Testament and we start talking about laws, we start talking about rules, they bring a certain degree of stigma to them. And uh, a lot of that is because we simply don't understand the context of the way in which these things are given. We talked about how God has called these people, his holy people, to be a nation of priests. You're going to be my people. You're going to be those who bring my name to others and, um, and, and live in a way that is distinct. And so he begins to give them the law as a way of showing them how to live that way, which is the purpose of these Ten Commandments. Here's a question. How many of you have ever looked at the world and thought it's in bad shape? Yeah, okay. Fair amount. I think that a lot of people would agree that our world could be better. There could be more good, there could be more good people. That's right. That's a good way to say that. There, there could be a greater number of good people in the world. People who are more moral. People who are more ethical. People who do the right thing. People who care about doing the right thing. And we are constantly asking the question as a, as a society, how do we get more people to do good? Because we recognize that the world is what it is because people are who we are, right? Now, there's a couple different approaches to the idea even of morality, the idea of what is good. And the predominant approach to morality nowadays is based on the idea of rationalism, especially in the Western world, which is simply what everything is based on in the Western world now, which is, which is the understanding that the more intellectually knowledgeable we become, the more rational we can be, meaning the more we can disconnect ourselves from emotional things and we can be rational, the more that we can focus intellectually on the problem at hand, the more we can ultimately become better moral people. Ethics come from studying, understanding, learning um, ethics and morals, right? Um, I was reading a book called The Righteous Mind by um, a secular um, social psychologist who studies morality. And he was talking about it from a secular perspective. And he said that one of the things that was completely life-changing for him as a cultural psychologist studying morality was when he realized halfway through his education that there was a delusion that existed amongst a lot of the rational people that he was studying alongside. He describes a delusion as a false conception and a persistent belief that is unconquerable by reason in something and has no existence in fact. So he says, there existed a delusion in the rational world that I was a part of, and it was a rationalist delusion. Here's what he says. I'm going to turn it on. He says, the worship of reason is itself an illustration of one of the most long-lived delusions in Western history, the rationalist delusion. It's the idea that reasoning is our most noble attribute. 
One that makes us like gods, if you're Plato, or that brings us beyond the delusion of believing in gods for the new atheists. He says these people, these who believe in this idea that rationalism is the answer to all, they believe that reasoning is the royal road to moral truth, and they believe that people who reason well are more likely to act morally. Now, this is the entire worldview that his life was built on up until this point, was that the greater our ability to reason well becomes, the more moral we can be. As we advance as a people and learn more and understand and study more intellectually and rationally, we can become better. If we don't like the way the world is, it's because people are being unreasonable. And if people can be more reasonable and rational, then we can be better people. So he's fascinated with this because he sees it as a delusion, and he quotes one psychologist whose name I'm not even going to try to pronounce, and he said, this psychologist years ago was determined to figure out how valid this was, this idea that those who study... When I was in college and I began philosophy classes and I took my first ethics class, I was so curious to see what my, um, uh, my philosophy professor of ethics was like. Was he a good person? Was he a nice person? Was he a kind person? Was he a moral person? Because one would expect that they would be if this is the study that they have devoted their life to. And this is what this guy found out. He said he used survey and more surreptitious methods to measure how often moral philosophers gave to charity, voted, called their mothers, donated blood, donated organs, cleaned up after themselves at philosophy conferences, and respond to emails from their students. And in none of these ways were moral philosophers better than other philosophers or professors in other fields. Being an expert in morality doesn't make you moral. He even scrounged up the missing books list from dozens of libraries and found that academic books on ethics, which are presumably borrowed mostly by ethicists, are more likely to be stolen or just never returned than books in other areas of philosophy. (laughs) Maybe I stole a book when I was an ethics philosophy guy, I don't know. One approach to the world being better is this. That the more we understand and the more we learn and the more reasonable we become, the more moral we can be. Another approach is this. There are two fundamentally different approaches. Another approach is the approach of the sacred morality. The idea of a morality or a system of ethics built upon things being sacred. The idea that there is a God who creates people, and that God himself is sacred, and he creates people in his image, therefore the people are sacred. And so the actions and the things that the people do, the way that they treat one another, the way that they choose to live, even when they're alone and their actions impact no one but themselves, they are sacred things. And so morality is tied to the idea that we are to be a sacred people, that we are to be a people who remain pure and live in a certain way as reflections of this sacred God who created everyone. That is the other approach to morality. That is the approach that we read about in the Ten Commandments. So we can look out and we can say the world ought to be better. And if we can reason and learn enough and rationalize and advance as a society, we can get there morally. Or we can look at the world and say it ought to be better. But if we have any hopes of morally being better, of having ethics, they have to be rooted in something that is sacred ultimately, that gives value to these people and these actions and these things. So, the people gather, and God begins to give them the law, the Ten Commandments. And I want to look at what they are briefly. The first one, you shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3. 
You can do everything in your power to be honest, faithful to your spouse, not murder, not be envious, but if you serve another God besides Yahweh, you break the first and most important commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. There were a lot of other gods at the time. Gods that people believed in were sacred, actual deities. And there were a lot of things that people made into gods and devoted their entire life to the worship of, based their morality and actions upon And God says to the Israelites, first and foremost, this will be the basis for all of these commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Ultimately, God is characterized again and again and again as a jealous God. But he is rightfully jealous. He is not jealous out of insecurity. He's not jealous out of fear. He's jealous because he objectively is better and worthy of praise and admiration and worship than other things. And so when those other things are worshiped, there's something wrong with that. And he calls it out. Now, the thing about the law is that it reflects God more than anything else, more than it is even a guide for how to live. It is something that points us back and says, this is how we understand who this God is and what he's all about. Like the rest of the Old Testament, the main character is God. It is in us. So while we want to take the Ten Commandments, for example, and say they are first and foremost a list of rules by which we live as individuals to become better, They are first and foremost supposed to show us who exactly this God is. What exactly does he care about? What exactly does he want people to be about and to do? Just like if you were to walk into any public space in this state and you were to find all kinds of ways that it had been made accessible to people who are physically disabled. And you would say, why do those laws exist? They reflect the values of the people of the state who said... We want people of all levels of ability to be able to access the same things publicly, right? The laws reflect the people, the value that makes them, and it says something about them. He goes on to say, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation, those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Now, there were two ways that this would happen. One, they would make physical idols of things that had nothing to do with God and they would worship those things. They would imbue into those things significance and value and they would bow down and they would worship them. They would take something that is just a thing and they would make it more than a thing and they would devote themselves to that thing. And he spoke against it and said, that's an idol. And when you do that, you sin against me. You hurt the relationship that you have with me. But there's another way that people would do this, and it's what we see often with the Israelites. They would actually make idols of things that had to do with God himself, and he would still be upset, and he would still tell them not to. The golden calf was an idol to God, to Yahweh. They just wanted to see him. They just wanted, Moses had gone up to the mountain. They're like, we, can we just have something predictable? And even though he gave them a lot of really predictable things, they said, we want something we can see. We could at least see the Pharaoh. We want to see him. So they made a golden calf and they worshiped it as him. And God was infuriated by this because it breaks this commandment of worshiping an object, a man-made object. Is there any worse idea 
for the image and reputation of God than the concept that God is man-made. The idea that we have made him ourselves as a way of simply having something to worship. And so he prohibits them from doing that. There's another um, example of this in the Old Testament that is incredibly powerful. In the book of Numbers, we read about the people wandering in the desert. They've gone to bury Aaron. He's died. And uh, they, uh, where do they go? They go, they set out from Mount Hor, where Aaron was buried, to go to the Red Sea. And they have a detour, and they get really mad and impatient, and they complain against Yahweh and Moses. And so in response, it says that God sends fiery serpents don't even want to know, down upon them, and they start killing people. And so for the people who are repentant, God provides a way for them to survive that. He tells them to cast this big serpent out of bronze, and that serpent will save them from the other ones if they're repentant. Well, the people are grateful for this, and they rejoice in it. And so they keep it. They hang on to it. And then thousands of years later, or at least a really long time later, we read about in 2 Kings, King Hezekiah, who tears down altars, all these pagan altars that he's tearing down, but one of the things that he tears down is this very bronze statue, this thing that God told them to build, this thing that God used to deliver them, this thing that over thousands of years, or at least over hundreds of years, over nearly 1,000 years, they had invested this thing, they, one author says, with mysterious sanctity. They, they basically said, we've had it for so long, it means so much to us that this thing is now what we worship. And God said for King Hezekiah to destroy it, right? So even things that God has worked through and done, he says, you are not to worship the things. You are not to give significance to those things in that way. It's unhealthy. It's not me. And it's not okay. This extends to God himself now. We have a cross to remember what Jesus did for us. But is that cross something that we worship? No. Is that cross something that we give greater significance than it is? No, because it is a representation of what has happened. We don't worship the object itself. In ancient times, idolatry was one of the most common forms of giving in to the outside culture. Because everyone had idols. Everyone had things they worshipped. And a lot of their gods and a lot of their idols were built around a thing that people really valued. Right? So there's a God of war, a God of love, a God of fertility. And if you were really into the idea of battle and war, and you could worship that God and not focus on all the other stuff. And this is one of the things that I think drew people to idols. Have we ever wanted that? Have we ever wanted one aspect of God, one thing that is one way and said, that's what I want everything to be about for me? Well, that's what they would do. And they would make an idol to that thing and they would worship that thing. And they didn't have to worry about the bigger picture. I think one of the things that is the most challenging about what Scripture does when we, when we are confronted by it, when we even gather together and, and read it together, is we see things in God that are not always easy for us to take in and apply to our lives. They challenge us. They kind of hurt. But we can never see those things if we're only devoted to worshiping specific aspects of things that we care about and that we value. He goes on and says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, this isn't speaking specifically to the way that we use God's name, like a bad word or something. Uh, what it's talking about is something somewhat different, but much more significant. The word take, take the Lord's name in vain, is the word describing, like if I were to hand you something and you, you grabbed it, you took it, and then you carried it. This word can be translated as take, as carry, as hold, as bear. Those who bear the Lord's name, 
You see, we called to be a kingdom, a group of priests, have been given God's name and have been called to carry it, to be manifestations of him to other people. We see this throughout the Old Testament. God called Aaron, the priest, to wear the names of the tribes of of Israel on him. He actually made a big vest thing, and he had stones, 12 stones. And the names of each tribe were inscribed on the stones. And then when he went into the temple, he, he actually carried in the names of the people with him because his job is to represent the people when he was with God, just like his job is to represent God with people. In the very same way, the Israelites are being called to be bearers of God's name, to carry it a certain way. And what he's saying is don't carry it in vain. One uh, biblical scholar who has written an entire book dedicated to this, I want to read you a quote from their book. Her name's Carmen Imes, and she used to attend this church. And this is a quote from a book that she wrote specifically on this topic. She said, because they bear his name, they are charged to represent him well. That is, they must not bear that name in vain. That goes far beyond oaths or pronunciation of God's name. It extends to their behavior in every area of life. In everything they represent him. They are his public relations department. The nations are watching the Israelites to find out what Yahweh is like. She goes on in her book to use the example of a college sweatshirt that has the name of the school on it. You put on that sweatshirt and you bear the name of your school, and then anything you do reflects upon the school. I was saying in the first service, it might not be a great idea to give those sweatshirts out in college, right? Because sometimes people don't do, that's not like a time of life that's known for reasonable decision making and good behavior for a lot of people. But this is true, right? That when we bear the name of God, the image of God, and our, and our call to bring it to other people. He's not talking about, about using God's name simply as, as, as like a derogatory word, although that's certainly included in something like this. He's talking about the very way that we live. Do not live in such a way that will, that will cause my name to be in vain. Do not say that you'll carry my name and live it out, but not actually do it. He goes on to say that we're to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then he explains, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Observing, observing the Sabbath, taking a day of rest, we see it throughout Scripture. We see it um, emphasized more than we would expect every time. Uh, every time we come upon the Sabbath day thing, you kind of go, again with this? Why again with this? Even when he gives them food like manna, he says, but I'm going to give it to you in a way that you're going to rest. It's like he keeps remembering it. It's almost like the only way to really observe the Sabbath is to continue remembering that you have to observe the Sabbath again and again and again. This word remember doesn't just mean like remember in your mind. It means to observe. You remember something by observing it and living it out. It's the difference between saying to your spouse, I remembered your birthday, but all you did was say happy birthday versus they wake up in the morning and you've got a bunch of presents waiting for them. I remembered your birthday. I am observing this day. We're called to rest, and it's one of the hardest commandments for many of us because it is a call to trust God. Rest doesn't exist when you're in slavery and in bondage. 
And rest doesn't exist when you are God yourself. When you live as though you're God. And what I mean by that is when you live as though everything rests on you. You can't take a day off when you know the world's going to fall apart when you do. You can't take a day of rest because that requires that you trust that God will take care of you. That it will be okay even when you rest. And this is one of the hardest things for God's people to do, is to just take a day, stop work, and remember him, and to keep that day holy. And we even fixate on on days, even though in the New Testament, Paul makes it very clear. He says, don't fixate on the day, don't make one day more reverent than another day. But we are called to rest. We are called to observe this goes on and says, this is a lot of people's favorite, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It's interesting that this one is tied to, it's almost like it was written so that you could yell it at a kid, you know? Uh, if, you want, if you want your life to be a long life, honor me now, right? Like it would be perfectly given that way. Uh, there's a reason there's a promise associated with this one. That if you honor your father and mother, that your days will go long. And it's because honoring your father and mother is really ultimately the basis by which all authority works out in our lives from a very young age, right? If you learn how to honor the authority of your parents, then you will understand how to honor any authority, no matter how reasonable or unreasonable it may be. This is hard for many of us. But we recognize, we talked about this a few weeks ago, and we talked about God raising up his people from being babies to sort of infants to adults. The idea that how do you raise a child is you show them that they can be dependent, that you can be dependent on. You show the child that they can trust you. Why? Because they need to see you as an authority in their life. And an authority is someone that can be trusted. So what God is telling his people is that the only way community is going to work for all of you is if you can recognize authority amongst yourselves. The only way that you're gonna actually, this is really the most, one of the most practical of all the commandments because it's saying, if you're a person who can't handle authority, and maybe you even use the excuse of God as I don't need to handle authority, right? Oh, God's my authority, so no one else needs to be. If you can't handle authority, then your life's gonna be a mess. You're gonna question everything and everyone all the time, you're going you're gonna to probably bounce around from like job to job because you're constantly going to be unhappy. You're going to complain about every teacher. You're going to complain about every church. You're going to ultimately have questions and doubts and skepticism about so many things because you struggle to really understand the concept of respecting authority even when you don't agree with it, right? Even when they're not totally worthy of it. Does God give this command expecting that all Israelites' parents are perfect? No, he doesn't. And for many of us, this is a painful one to hear because our parents left us, our parents failed us, our parents didn't measure up in the way that we needed them to. So how do you honor authority that does that? Well, honoring authority doesn't mean that you do every specific thing that a person says for the rest of your life, even if what they call you to do is sinful or wrong. And we often parse this, these commandments out to such a sort of degree of minutia. Ultimately, the commandment is simple, to honor them to be honorable to them and to be honoring to them in the best that you can be. Without this, the community won't do well. People won't do well. He goes on with some that require pretty, uh, they don't really require too much explanation, I think. 
this one's pretty self-explanatory. You shall not murder. Don't murder people. That's not good. You shall not commit adultery. Ultimately, adultery would lead to the breakdown of families and like the, 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 the unit by which community was going to be built upon, family after family after family. So adultery would lead to, as we, many of us, have experienced in our own families or know of from other people, adultery destroys relationships and families, right? It can lead to the breakdown. Apart from the fact that it is a sin to even the act of committing adultery itself, because the marriage vow is a covenant that we take before God, and it's very important to him, but that it also leads to such destruction that the community suffers as a result of it. You shall not steal. Don't steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. People often think this means do not lie. That's not what this commandment translates to be, and it's not what it even says. Do not, it doesn't say do not lie. It says don't bear false witness against your neighbor. It's a very specific thing. Now, that doesn't mean that we're allowed to lie. But a lot of the, uh, again, nitpicking of when are we just in lying? When are we not just? If a Nazi is knocking on the person's door and they answer it, what do they do? Are they allowed to lie? Are they not allowed to? Is because we take this commandment specifically and believe that it means that you're never allowed to lie in any situation no matter what happens. This commandment says that when you and your neighbor are standing side to side, you are not allowed to lie about them, what they've done, who they are, their intentions. Now, you think about how much breakdown in community has happened because of that right there, because of two people not trying to accurately depict the other person and even understand where they're coming from. One of the foundational ideas of, of conflict is seek to understand rather than to be understood, but none of us, but we don't often do that, right? We don't have conflict with other people so that we can better understand them because heaven forbid we would want to misrepresent them, bear false witness, say they are something they aren't, say they meant something they didn't, say they did something that they didn't. No. We just go, I know, I'm, it's clear, we know, it's obvious, I'm done, I'm not going to figure it out too hard, this is who they are, this is what they've done. If we really tried as hard as we could to make sure that what we were saying about other people was absolutely true, that what we assumed about their intentions was absolutely true. How different would community be versus saying, when you're there with another person and there's a conflict, whatever you think you need to say to make it clear that they're the bad guy and they've done something wrong. You know, you know how you get in those situations where you're convinced somebody's wrong even if you don't have all the great reasons for it, and so you feel justified in making it out to be that that person's wrong? You go, I know they're wrong even if I can't exactly explain why, and we begin to exaggerate and inflate things and not try to understand what's really happening with them because we think we're justified. We go, they're wrong. Everybody knows it. We go on to the last one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. It's like a Dr. Seuss version of a Ten Commandment. <laughs> it's very clear, right? He's really spelling it out. Don't covet anything. Not the biggest thing, the house. Not the second biggest thing, the wife. Not the servants, the people they employ. Not the ox, not even the donkey. Don't covet your neighbor's donkey which is a weird thing to say, right? But envy, covetousness, is one of the most destructive forces in the concept of community. 
It absolutely destroys. It causes you to want badly for people that you're supposed to love. It causes you to want what they have, and it causes you to stop caring about and being grateful for what you have. And we describe it as things like the very color of your eye and the power of your eye. You can have an envious eye. The way that you look and see a person that you would otherwise love and think is great, you can see completely wrong simply because you want what they have. That it is this monster, that envy is a monster that can grow inside of you and begin to poison you like a sickness. And this is exactly what it does. I think we could all think of an example. I'll never forget when I was in high school and this guy pulled up outside of the wrestling team uh, practice, because yes, obviously I was a wrestler in high school, as you can tell. And he pulled up outside in his brand new truck that he got. And I was like, remember thinking, I've never been this jealous of anything. And then fast forward like seven years, my friend, we were at the gym again, you know, we were at the gym and he pulled out this thing, this new, he got this new cell phone, it's called a Razor. Okay? And it was called a razor because it was so thin. And I looked at my phone, I was like, <laughs> it's so big. Who would want a big phone? I want the smallest, tiniest, razor thin phone that I can get. I'm sure I'll never again want the biggest phone that I can possibly get. And I was overwhelmed with jealousy. I went home and I, like, I went to the, like, the Verizon store and I'm like, okay, what do I got to do to get one today? And they're like, oh, it's not going to be good for you, you know. It's going to cost you a lot more than it cost your friend. But I remember these vivid moments of being completely consumed with envy for something and for what someone else had. And I remember feeling, if I can't have it, I don't want them to have it, which is what covetousness does. It leads to the complete breakdown of community. It's the opposite of harmony and wanting good for your brother, because ultimately it leads you to wanting evil. And that's the reason why he's so thorough about it. So the good news about the Ten Commandments is this. They should be kept. They are important, and we should try to do these things. Not because we live under the law of them, but they reflect who God is. They reflect the things that God cares about. And so we should look at them, seek to understand God, and then say, how can I live in a way that is a reflection to these things that I see that God cares about? Why? Because he's giving them to a community of people, and he's saying, here's how you guys need to treat each other. And if you guys can treat me this way and each other this way, then you'll do a great job of being representatives of mine. The Ten Commandments should be kept by the right people. And this is the catch that makes a lot of us really frustrated. The Ten Commandments are not meant for people outside of God's nation of priests. They're not. Their job is not to get the other people to follow the Ten Commandments. Their job, and he'll ultimately tell them this again and again and again, is to make their temple and to make their beliefs and to make what they know of God accessible to all peoples. But their job is not to get the other people to live like them without believing what they believe. Right? I'm sure that, I'm sure that would never happen today right? Do you know what would happen if one of the nations outside of Israel adopted all of their laws and all of their rules without believing the things they believed? They would fail to be distinct. In the same way they have to try to remain pure, it actually 
helps them that there is a distinction between the way that they live and they choose to live and those outside. But when I ask the question, how happy are you with this world? How happy are you with the way people in the world behave and the way that people act and live? And sometimes so much of our frustration is we just want everyone to live the same way and we want them to all follow the same rules and they're the rules that we care a lot about because they're the Ten Commandments and we love Jesus and we're a part of God's kingdom. But the commandment isn't given to us to get everyone to go live out the Ten Commandments. We're called to do something before that that's a lot more important. What is it called when people try to just do these things without being God's people? It's called religion. It's called legalism. And it's the thing Jesus spoke the most harshly against. One author said, the only time that you're further from God than when you sin is when you try to fix your sin yourself. And we often don't look at it that way. We think if we can just help everybody get better and clean their act up and clean their life up, then we will have done something significant. These commandments should be kept, but they should be kept by God's people because they have become God's people and they want to live in a way that is holy for him and his name as image bearers. These commandments should also be kept for the right reasons and not for the wrong reasons. Because again, keeping these commandments, living a certain way for the sake of being justified by those actions and those things is wrong. It's religion, it's legalism, it's the thing that Jesus spoke against. We skip the first two verses of this chapter because I want to go back to them at this point. This is how God introduces the Ten Commandments to his people. We read this in verses one and two. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why would he start the 10 commandments this way? He doesn't start it with, I'm the Lord your God who created everything. I'm the Lord who made you. I'm the authority over you for that reason. He doesn't even just say, I am. And leave it at that. He says to them, before telling them how to live, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why? Because he is the God who has rescued these people. And he wants them to live this way because they've been saved, because they've been rescued and they've been redeemed. He says, because you've been rescued by me, now live for me. Don't do it just because you're afraid of me or because I'm bigger than you. I want you to live this way because I have chosen you and saved you and I've redeemed you. The gospel is simple. Two words, Jesus saves. That's the gospel. The gospel comes first, then comes the other stuff. Then comes the way we live. Then comes the law. Then comes the desire to live in a way that is pleasing to our God who has saved us. It's fascinating if you look at the timeline of all this stuff. Israel came to Sinai 50 days after the Passover. And God came to them in fire and thunder and loud noise. And he gave them the law and said, live this way. Let this guide how you live for me. Fast forward. There was another Passover. Jesus dies as sacrifice. 50 days after Jesus dies, we have Pentecost. When God comes to his people in fire and in wind and in loud noise, but he dwells internally at that point. 
And he says, not I'm giving you the law so that you can live this way. He says, I'm giving you the spirit. And this spirit will show you how to live. This spirit will guide you. And we read in the, in the New Testament from that point on, like, let the spirit be your conscience. The spirit will guide you in how to live. Will the spirit contradict these things? No, because these things are a reflection of who our God is and he doesn't change. That's why Luke 22, when Jesus is taking communion with the disciples, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And he tells them elsewhere that it is poured out for them and it, and it replaces this old covenant of this law. So there was this original covenant of the law and they have now moved to a new covenant. And so we have to follow these things, but we follow them for the right reasons. We read this in Romans 7, 4, Paul talks. He says, likewise, my brothers, you've also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We are not to live as slaves to the law, thinking that our job is to be the people who do the best job at following all the rules. We are to be people filled with the spirit, live for Jesus, who has saved us, who's rescued us, who's redeemed us. What that also means is that what we ought to want when we look at the world and we say, we don't like what we see, we don't like how things are going, is that there is only really one answer then. And the answer is we want people who are living in slavery and in bondage to be freed. We want more people to be rescued because we know that the most important thing is that God rescues more people just as he rescued us. And then what will happen is the people's hearts living for him out of gratefulness to him will say, how can I live in a way that the sacred is really sacred, that the pure remains pure, that I want to be good even when only God is the one looking at what I'm doing because I want for God to be pleased. Not because I feel guilty and obligated. Not because I think through my good actions I will earn something like life. But because I know that my actions are a reflection of who he is. We are meant to be image bearers. And what that means is that we as a community should live in such a way that people look at us and they say, I desire the God who is behind that thing. The ability to rise above so many other things that people cannot. The ability to be united when so many people cannot. The ability to want to characterize our brother in the best possible way, even when we do not. The ability to actually keep the main thing the main thing in our God and to say that he, we will worship him alone. The ability to rest and not be like people who are working ourselves to death and not joyfully resting in him. The ability to be all of those things, that would then cause others to look and say there is something distinct. But for a lot of us, that's really hard because it means letting go of the hope that everyone else lives according to our rules and thinking that that's what needs to happen.
that if only everybody in the world lived according to our rules, is it true that living this way is better? Of course it is. Because God is good, and what he calls us to is good, and anyone choosing to do these things will be doing good things. But if they only do these things, will it fix our world? No. Will it make people better people? No. And will it deal with the real enslavement and slavery that we're all dealing with? No, it won't. And so what we want is for people to see past these things and to say, I want what's at the heart of that thing. And that's what we offer. Let's pray. Father, for many of us, we encounter your word in the Ten Commandments and we feel guilt, which is appropriate because you tell us that you gave us the law to convict us. You gave us the law in part to show us how much we are in need of you. And so for many of us, as we worship and as we reflect on this, we, 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 uh, we will repent to you, Lord. We will ask your forgiveness um, because our desire is to live out of gratefulness in a way that's pleasing to you. And Lord, for many of us, the thing that we repent of and have to confess of is the, the legalism that often makes us care more about the rules that we're following than the God that we're doing this for, care more about the way other people behave than about who you are in their life, and that get really upset sometimes about the fact that there aren't more people living this way, Lord, when instead we should really be upset about the fact that there are people perishing, Lord. Father, I pray that we would be a group of people who would be characterized by love, by forgiveness, by grace, a group of people who understand why the world is the way it is and have the only real source of life that there is to offer, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Father, as we sing that, we, um, I think, are reminded of how prone we are to be slaves and that fear is the greatest enemy of all, Lord. We have no reason to live in fear of anything because you brought us out of bondage and um, you've given us freedom in you. God, we're so grateful that you sent your son to, to teach his disciples and those that listen to him that these commandments begin in our hearts, Lord, that it isn't about murder. Before that, it's about anger and hate, that more than adultery, it's about lust, uh, that there are for all of these commandments, ways that they begin in our hearts. And our prayer is that you would search our hearts, that you would help us to do that so that we could see um, whether or not we really are for you, Lord. Um, and our prayer is that if we see things in there that we don't like, Lord, that you would help us to repent of those things and come to you, Lord. That we would not walk in fear and in sin, but in freedom and in confidence, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great week.